This is episode two with Nationwide Children's Hospital neonatologist, Dr. Valencia Walker. I wish that for everyone, that you surround yourself with people that bring out the best in you, but also accepts you just for who you are. Welcome to the Who We Are and Why We're Here podcast. I'm your host, Greg Friedberg, a current medical student at The Ohio State University College of Medicine, and it's my mission through this podcast to help reignite the flame for those in the medical field who feel like it's slowly burning out. If that's you or someone you know, I just want to thank you for your courage and for listening today, and I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to Who We Are and Why We're Here. It's been a while since our last episode, and I wanted to apologize for that delay. I realized very quickly that keeping up with a regular podcast schedule is actually a lot harder than expected, especially amidst the stressors and pressures of medical school. I just, I think I've decided to make this more of a do it when you want, do it when you can, do it when it feels right kind of thing. So yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is just expect episodes on a pretty irregular basis and just know that that's okay. Anyways, let's move on to what we've got in store today. My second ever guest on the show is a good one. It's Dr. Valencia Walker. She's a practicing neonatologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus. And she also does some tremendous advocacy and work in the realm of health equity and diversity and inclusion. I first met her during my orientation week at Ohio State, where she presented to us on social and professional identity, creating respectful learning environments, and combating social determinants of health. And I'm so excited to share our conversation with you because she's just such an amazing teacher, advocate, and role model for so many. So, without further ado, here she is, Dr. Valencia Walker. Hello there. Welcome to the Who We Are and Why We're Here podcast. I'm so excited to be here with um, my new guest here, Dr. Valencia Walker. Um, Dr. Walker is at Nationwide Children's Hospital here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, She is a neonatologist by trade um, and also the Associate Chief in Diversity and Health Equity um, over at nationwide children's hospital and actually we got to meet um you got to meet my entire medical school class in the first week of medical school and you gave a couple talks to us during orientation week so that's where i got your name and i heard uh, you were probably someone that would be good to talk to for this podcast too from someone who helped me set it up so i'm excited to have you here and i'll let you kind of give your own intro Okay, awesome. Well, first, thank you so much, Greg, for having me. Um, We were chatting a little bit before we got started. And so I'm going to confess this to start, um, that it's easy to have a conversation. But then when you really think, oh, you want me to talk about myself, somehow that becomes a bit more challenging. So I want to thank you for making me feel welcome. And I'm excited to chat. Yeah, same here. Um, thank you for being here. And um, hopefully, like, you, again, this this is kind of your opportunity to just talk about whatever you want to talk about. And we just want to, the purpose of this podcast is to get to know you as a person. Uh, the per, kind of the phrase I've been using is the person behind the white coat. So, um, so first things first, I guess, um, again, who you are, where you're from, um, and maybe a little bit about like what got you into medicine and practicing in the field that you are now. Um, Go go ahead. Uh, so I'm going to s- save the who I am question maybe for last. <laughs> and I'll start with where I'm from. I grew up in Georgia. So I consider myself a Southerner. My father served in the military. 
and retired while I was still young, but you know, I was born in South Carolina, but we lived in a few different places, including Japan before my father retired. And I, you know, I always joke and say that he traveled just enough for me not to become sick of it. And so I think I've really appreciated all the places that I've lived in my life as I've gone through my training. And it's always, I've always had the incentive to want to go someplace new and try something new. Um, so I went from growing up in the South to living in Southern California, uh, where I started my academic clinical career. Um, why did I, I think you asked, want to become a doctor? Was that yeah, the kind last of, part of the question? Mm -hmm. What kind of got you, like, what was your path to where you are now? Sure. I am so privileged in that I grew up with amazingly supportive parents. Both of my parents were older when they married each other. So for my parents growing up, you know, and living through things like the civil rights movement and living through the realities of what um, black people in this country truly could and could not do um, in part because of lack of safety and lack of opportunity that was specifically structured and designed that way. Um, and finding each other, they were very much in love and it's just the cutest, most adorable thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, they carried a lot of what we now understand and refer to as, you know, a lot of the trauma and generational trauma. But with that, they definitely were people that very much believed in hope and resilience and perseverance. And, you know, as you may commonly hear referred to the power of education to make a difference in your life. So they had a super nerdy little child <laughs> and, but they encouraged that and they supported my education and the things that I enjoyed doing. And my mother trained as a, as a nurse and very much they encouraged all my interests in, in science and learning. And with that, you know, my mom was like, Oh, you should be a doctor. And I'm like, okay. You know, I didn't necessarily think, Oh, I'm going to be a doctor, but I definitely knew I wanted to do something in my life that helped people and made a difference in the world. You know, when they tell you to fill out, you know, when you're filling out your med school applications and they say, why do you want to be a doctor? Don't say, because you want to help people. I, I was that person. Like I was like, I, I want to help people, but I'm a nerd and I'm really good at science and I like biology. So, wow, you can be like nerdy and like science and like help people if you're a doctor. So it just totally made sense. And that's probably I'd say the, the main factors that kind of shaped how I started on this path and this journey. And of course there's construction behind me. So hopefully it's not too loud. No, we can hear you quite clearly. Um, and I think that's awesome. I think, like you said, it is the perfect intersection of a lot of different things. The nerdiness, like I'm a total nerd too. So I totally empathize with that. Um, but also that opportunity to genuinely care for people. And you can tell, like, you mean it. And and if people are listening to this just audio only and not seeing your face, like, then that it's a shame because, like, you can see it on your face when you, when you say it. Like, you genuinely do care 
so much. And that's one of the things that drove you to this field. So I think that's awesome. Um, I guess don't kind say of, that on your application, though. <laughs> don't say it on the application. You heard it here first and probably from many other people who also tell you, don't just write, you want to help people. Um, but kind of curtailing off of that, um, you um, are a neonatologist. Um, did you know that that's what you wanted to do? How did you kind of figure that out um, and navigate the, ambigu the ambiguity of like, what do I want to actually be? Not just a doctor, but what specialty? So I'm impressed with people who you know, when they're three years old, they tell you, I want to be a doctor. And then, you know, when they're five, they tell you, I want to be a um, hematologist, oncologist, and I'm going to cure cancer. I was never that person. Again, there were so many different things that interested me that I was excited about. I really liked research and I liked science and I really liked the brain. And I thought that I wanted to be a neurologist because like neuroscience to me, it was just one of the most fascinating things in the world. And it was something I was curious about and I enjoyed doing and doing research in a lab. And, you know, you had like technical and procedural skills and we worked with, you know, tiny little things and like, you know, cell cultures. And there was a lot of precision and accuracy involved in all of this work and like thinking, but, and then problem solving. And then even with the brain and like, if there's like a, if a person has a stroke and trying to understand the lesion or how some of the presentations of things that are making a return, like syphilis, sadly, but all of this seemed to work together. And then I, I got to medical school and neurology, you know, the study of the brain is a, what we call an early match. And so I got into my third year of medical school. And I did my neurology rotation early, right? Because you want to make sure that what you think you want to do is what you want to do. And here comes the narrator. It was not what she wanted to do. So I did the rotation and I did not like the clinical aspect of it at all. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this doesn't, this is not how I want to spend my day. So then I went through and I did a pediatrics rotation. And as a third year med student, you know, you're on call at night and you get to the call room, made it to the call room. It was a good sign. But I would lay there and just think like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to see what new thing shows up tomorrow. Like, you know, there were all these different types of problems and diseases and syndromes and they're all different and then some of them the same and you can really make a difference. And I thought one day I'm going to be 80 years old and I think I'll still be excited about doing this. But then beyond that, I did my surgery rotation and also felt the exact same way, except I've always loved kids, you know, growing up, like I was the person that volunteered to teach like the kindergarten Sunday school class, you know, like, but I never thought that I would enjoy taking care of sick kids because that's extraordinarily difficult. And I never thought I could be the person that would have a conversation with someone and tell them that their child had passed away. Like I was like, I want no parts of that at all. But at the time I'm old enough that this was pre duty hour restrictions. The thought of five years of never seeing the sunrise and never seeing the sunset in surgery. I kind of liked the sun. Um, and even though where I attended medical school, the PEDS program was pretty intense. In general, they were still a bit happier than the surgeons that were chronically sleep deprived. And it was like, you know, three years versus five years. And interestingly enough, at the time, 
because I didn't have true exposure to medicine and the wide range of opportunities in medicine, I didn't even know really there was such a thing as a pediatric surgeon. So I did a NICU rotation as a sub-I my fourth year of medical school. And everyone said, oh, if you're a med student, you should do neonatology because, you know, they let you take care of your own patients. You can learn a lot. And I was like, sure, that's me. Like, I want to do that. Now, my mom, I told you, was a nurse and she was a labor and delivery nurse. And she had already said, you should be a neonatologist. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to let my mom tell me what type of doctor I'm going to be. Like, who does that? Absolutely not. She doesn't know. But sure enough, I got on this rotation I walk in the very first day, there's like a chronic uh, BPD, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, which is like a severe form of chronic lung disease in a tiny little premature baby. And it is one of the banes of our existence and our profession. And it's a part of what drives us so much to do science and research and discovery. And I walk up to this baby's bedside. And I mean, the baby just sees me in heart rate and oxygen saturation. I'm like, what did I do? We just met. But at the same time, we also fell in love with each other, not in the literal sense, because obviously there's a bit of inappropriateness in that, but the environment. And remember, I mentioned earlier, precision, problem solving, procedures, all of that was neonatology. And I had the cutest, best patients in the world. All of my patients have cute little pink toes and you and it actually is not um, inappropriate to cuddle with them. So. I felt like I got the best of all worlds where I combine procedures, critical care, which after all the things I said, I actually really enjoyed the ability to step in in a crisis and having to remain calm and having to figure out a problem, but then also getting the continuity of care, unlike often pediatric ICU and sometimes even adult ICU. Our patients do stay with us and we watch them develop and we really do develop relationships with families. Now, the caveat is, <clears throat> excuse me, most people don't be like me. They go through the match where you find out as a fourth year medical student where you're going to attend residency. And then once you match, you know, you're kind of thinking like, okay, like now it's just kind of kick back, relax a little bit, enjoy that last little bit of time before graduation, make the most of it. I decided to take this really cool elective called pediatric surgery. And literally when I showed up, they were like, you're a fourth year med student. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Um, but it was phenomenal. It was a great opportunity. I've often wondered if I could do it again, would I do pediatric surgery? And the answer, unfortunately, is no, because as much as I love it, the way surgery is set up, I still wouldn't be able to get around that five years of general surgery. And when I tell you that I love children and I love taking care of kids. It's the absolute best thing in the world. So I say all that very long drawn out story to say that it is true. Medicine attracts you based a little bit on who you are and your personality type. And some of the, you know, there's some hilarious group of TikTok videos going around right now um, that makes fun of like all the different specialties. And we die laughing because 
they're so alarmingly accurate. I don't think he's done neonatology. So maybe I should pitch that and see <laughs> how it goes. It sounds like a great opportunity to uh, for them to make a new video. I mean, especially like, hey, you could probably give them some ideas of what is what about like your field is like it will make I don't know would actually resonate with everyone when they watch it. They're like, oh my god, like yes, that's funny, but also yes, that's me as a neonatologist. Like, <laughs> we're like, no, I meant to order TPN at one point six seven nine eight five mLs per hour. Thank you very much. Do not alter my order. <laughs> See, pitch it. I think it'd be great. And you know what? He can put you a little, he can like tag you in the credits. You're on TikTok. That's hysterical too. I'm on med TikTok too. So that's one of the most interesting communities because as an aspiring med student, you get to see like all these people who are still in the field and having a blast, like teaching other people about certain things. It's awesome. Um, But funny you mentioned that. Um, Also on that note, like (laughs) one thing I thought about when you were saying, Oh, like my mother, like always said that I was going to be a neonatologist or I should be one. Um, I've always been told like your mother's always right, whether you (laughs) like it or not, they're always right. And it's funny because like, they know you best and that's like, you, you, you know, you best. And so do they. And so like instinctually you're like, "I, I have to fight this. But at the end of the day, like they knew that that would have aligned really well with your passions and your interests. And I just think that's very interesting and very yeah. uh, poetic. About it. Cause she's been wrong about a few things. Mm. I, she might yeah. listen to this, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I will say in that regards, you are right. Like when I think when it comes to who you are at your core, my, I am very different from my parents. And some of it is because my parents intentionally reared me that way. But at the same time, sometimes it confuses them. Mm. So there have often been times where I'm like, no, this is what's best for me. And this is what I'm going to do. And I think there's just that parental, like wanting to protect you and not wanting something bad to happen to you when you're like, yeah, so I'm going to take off and go halfway across the world where there's like no internet service, no running water, no electricity. And there are wild animals that are like actively roaming around where we are, but it'll be fine. Don't worry. Um, That doesn't go over well with your parents, by the way, but it was the right thing for me. And I was really passionate about it. And like, it created a lot of tension and strife. As I got older, I understood it wasn't so much my parents telling me what to do, but just being scared and worried about me, which now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, you should have been. (laughs) Um, But I think that is the struggle, right? Um, And this just in general, like recognizing where you leave space. I think this comes up in medicine to really listen to your patients. Like there are things that you know, and you may know what's best for them, but then there are also what they know and what they're trying to communicate. And, and we do have to find, I think, more of that shared relationship and perspective um, between our parents, between our patients. It, it's relevant. But yes, she was pretty accurate on that one. They always know. They're always right. Um, so kind of um, tailing off that, um, you mentioned your parents and in, in your story here. Um, one of the things I know I had um, been curious about is mentors along the way um, that maybe helped you get into neonatology or maybe just like helped you kind of get better, get in better touch with yourself. Um, 
whether that be someone from medical school, I, I know I had in my notes, you went to Emory. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and then like, even in college, I mean, there, I don't know if like even a pre-med might be listening to this and being like, Oh, like I can see all the way up the line. Like Greg is a medical student. And then you as a doctor, like all these people who all of us have mentors and then we could potentially be someone they're listening to saying like, Oh, I need that guidance too. Or they're looking for that guidance too. So curious to know like who your mentors were that stick out in your mind um, aside from your parents that truly deserves a whole other podcast like we don't have time we don't have time for me to share so many wonderful people that have been a part of my life both personally and professionally that I would count as mentors and not just people who were quote-unquote senior to me but people who were my peers And you may have heard the expression mentor up. You know, when I look at even my current mentees and the things that I trust them and go to them and have these conversations and value and respect their opinion and perspectives. But I say all that to say, I think we also should probably look beyond the role of just a mentor because on this journey, you need different types of support systems and support people in your life. The mentor is absolutely critical and no one mentor can fill all of the needs that you may have. So you may have different types of mentors. I like the idea of mentor by committee. That's always been successful for me when I've been able to assemble a team of mentors. But beyond mentors, you need sponsors and you need coaches uh, and you need cheerleaders. And that those are additional things that go beyond the team of mentors. So, you know, my friends and my family are some of the biggest cheerleaders and they are, I'm so blessed and I'm so fortunate and so grateful. Then I have coaches and and now I have almost like a real coach. Uh, It's someone that in my new role, we needed to work together because of some shared resources and interests who has a background in coaching. Um, And as our working professional relationship evolved, like people who coach can't help but coach. Um, So it's been phenomenal. And then through my own networks, I've met someone else who does coaching and my best friend is now a a certified coach. And so those are people that, you know, kind of teach you how to not change who you are, but adjust your approach so that it works well in a situation, you know, that gives you those little tips that helps you draw up the play. You still have to do the work. You still have to practice. You still have to execute. So that's something that people often overlook. Um, then when it comes to sponsors, those are the people who have influence, the people that have power, the people who can say, I vouch for this person. They're incredible you should give them this opportunity, or I want to tap them to do this role or do this work. Or when you're not in the room and you're, and there's a group of people and they're just talking and your name comes up that there are the people that are championing you and how amazing you are. And they're telling your story better than you can. Um, And then of course there are mentors and mentors can be professional in the sense of like working in a lab As an undergrad, I got a chance to do research in a lab with someone um, who's really cool and like really like 
helped teach me a lot about how to like function in the lab and how to do the work. And was like really patient. And then I've had other mentors that have helped me develop in terms of, you know, a lot of the things that I'm doing in my career now. But when I look, as I mentioned, there have been people along the way, like I'm grateful for my high school chemistry teacher that was like, you're really good at this. You should try this summer program. Now, I look at the support that I had in college working in the lab with uh, Dr. Asaf Keller. Um, then, of course, medical school was a little difficult, um, slightly different. I can't say that I maybe felt as supported, but interestingly enough, it was a phenomenal woman in the financial aid office who really helped me find what I needed financially to take a lot of the stress that I was under in medical school off of me. And I am forever grateful for that because I think people often underestimate the financial burden and what it's like to have that, like paying your rent and buying food to eat. Like people don't often put those things together when they think about medical students. But then most importantly, like as I progressed into like residency and fellowship and my professional career, definitely I think more of the formal aspects of mentoring came into play. Um, I had an amazing program director in residency and my department chair, who's now passed away, he was the person that not only knew who you were, but knew your favorite type of donut. And I think that is the right kind of person to have in your life if they know your favorite kind of donut. But going into fellowship, that's when I really started to understand the mentorship by committee. And I had my overall mentor and he was one of the first people to really see me who, for who I was and validate the entirety of who I was, that I didn't want to just be a doctor. Like I wanted to do global health and mission work. I wanted to do good clinical care. I wanted to do good research. I wanted, you know, to make contributions to my community and to really help me start to believe that was possible, that I didn't have to follow this very like strict version of what success in medicine supposedly meant or looked like. And I will always value and appreciate that he believed in me. And because he believed in me, gave me that confidence to believe in myself and trust my instincts. The other people on my team, mentorship by team, I joke and I call him my taskmaster and I really shouldn't because he cared so deeply about me. But I knew when I showed up to the lab, like I had to get this work done and I had to make it happen. Um, and so I had kind of like my scientific mentor. And then I had this phenomenal woman who was a PhD who understood what it was like to be a woman in medicine and science um, and to be successful. And so I could kind of go to her when I couldn't quote unquote, go to the guys and discuss some of the microaggressions and the different things that would come up and how to navigate those. And then lastly, my, I had a, what I considered a clinical mentor, someone who was a master clinician, the one who just really understood why it was so important to take excellent care of your patients always. So that I think was really critical. And then as I've gone along, 
you know, people have, have, and I've also opened myself up to mentoring, right? I, and so some of the people I've talked about, you know, they, um, you know, I've had white men that have mentored me, white women that have mentored me. I've had um, black men that have mentored me. I've had amazing black women that have mentored me. So and also not, again, expecting my mentor to look a certain way or even necessarily perfectly align with what my interests were. But most importantly, I think that idea of understanding and affirming what my best contributions and what my authentic contributions could and should be. That was great. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, obviously, it, it takes a village and it's, it it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing all, all the people who've kind of even just shaped you into who you are and continue to. Um, I think that's awesome. And uh, uh, really telling that like everyone in the, probably has tons of people in their life who are also steering them in the same kind of way. It's not just one or two mentors. So thank you for that perspective. That was really cool. Um, I, I want to ask a little bit more about something you had mentioned was, was like kind of all the divisions of your life that you wanted to be really good in research. You wanted to be really good in clinical care and you wanted to um, also be able to contribute to your community. Um, and I know you, ha you, I had mentioned in the intro that you do a lot of work um, in diversity and health equity. I want to hear a little bit about your passion for that, where that came from and what you do with it now in your job and maybe like why you care about it. I know that's a huge question, but talk to me a little bit about that. So your audience can't see how I just almost fell out my chair laughing because similar to the mentorship question, that's a whole other podcast. But how do we do this um, quickly? I would say, you know, over the past year, there has definitely been an awareness of how difficult it is for people to understand racism and xenophobia and prejudice and discrimination. It has always existed. And when I was going through training, we were taught not to talk about it. One, because you wouldn't be believed. Um, two, the retaliation and retribution was real. Um, and it just wouldn't get you anywhere. Thankfully, people have continued to push to bring these conversations to the forefront in our society and now more so in our profession. But for so many of us, we had these negative experiences in so many ways. Um, you know, there's an expression, death by a thousand cuts. And having to show up in spaces that continue to harm you, I mean, there's something fundamentally unhealthy about that. A lot of times when we talk about people who are harmed, you know, there's the idea of survivors versus victims. And one of the things that I think is particularly empowering is victims tend to be seen as perpetually um, helpless. And survivors are often seen as those who are resilient, who overcome, who fight back. So when I went through a particularly difficult time in my career where I was being actively harmed because of bias um, and prejudice, I decided I didn't want to be a victim. 
And I wanted to proactively figure out how I could do something to make it better. And I thought about all my experiences growing up, going through my professional life. And now, you know, being exposed to unconscious bias and and trainings and educating myself around these topics and how they impact health and health care and outcomes. So I did the trainings and then I wanted to bring something positive into the environment to create that shift. One of the things I quickly understood was just having the experience doesn't make you qualified. And once I understood the, the breadth of scholarship, the need for discovery and innovation, remember this immediately activated all the things that have always been exciting to me, like figuring out a problem, intervening in a crisis, you know, doing the research, um, implementing change, making a difference, helping people. So it perfectly aligned in a way with maybe the core of who I I think I am. And that's how I got involved and got engaged. And once you really start to see the numbers and see the extent of the harm, what I often tell people, you can't unsee it. So I think that's why I've remain engaged and dedicated in this work. And mostly I've tried to find where is quote unquote, my lane to operate. I'm a neonatologist. We have a maternal mortality and infant mortality crisis in this country. And I am going to be a little nerdy. I don't like when people refer to racism as a pandemic, as if it's something new. It is something that is endemic with multiple epidemics that does have a pandemic component that maybe we're acutely living through, but this is not novel like COVID-19. And so you have to understand how endemic it is and how severe the epidemics are I can't do everything, but I can do something where I am. And so that has been lately where I've tried to focus my energy and my attention in this space. That was a really powerful answer. Thank you for that. Um, I, I think based on, like you said, the ability to identify this problem and to know where you can make a difference is really important. And I'm, I'm really happy that you've been able to find that place and are able to do that work and to keep and, and to try to make a difference. So thank I, you. I would that. say I'm still working on it, right? Because mm. it can feel overwhelming mm. at times. Um, and it does require, you know, continually reimagining and repositioning what's happening and what you're doing and why. Mm. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, I, I want to try to respect your time, so I don't want to. Oh, I have so I many other questions. That I, looked, I looked at my schedule wrong, so I think we're going to be okay. Okay. Um, I was going to say, because I, I can skip a bunch of questions or, and go to the final ones, or, or we can keep talking, but um, I, I still want to just, just in the uh, interest of like not brevity, but just want to make sure we kind of stick to that timeline that we had laid out for this podcast. Um, kind of 
glossing away or kind of curtailing away from the uh, the work that you do as the uh, diversity and health equity officer. I want to hear a little bit more about what you um, do outside of work and what you enjoy doing. Um, that's one of the biggest things with this podcast is I love hearing about everyone's versatile interests. And obviously, like we've heard a lot about you being, you as a clinician. We've heard a lot about you in your role um, at Nationwide as the uh, Chief Diversity and Health Equity Officer. And now I want to hear like, who are you outside of that? Um, what do you like to do? What makes you happy? What kind of just makes you thrive? That's a great question. So one, I am going to say it's complicated, but not really. I believe not in work-life balance, but I believe in work-life integration. And because I'm so passionate about what I do and I'm so driven by what I do, I'm always doing it in some way, shape, fashion, or form. It's not quote unquote, something that I turn off and like, oh, let me go live my life now. And it's all for me integrated together. And I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so that means that I have to go to like, you know, I have to go to my program and I, and sometimes I fall off the wagon and I have to get back on. And so my goal is to surround myself with people in my life that keep me accountable um, so that I can stay on the wagon um, and using that phrase kind of colloquially. But I enjoy doing what I think of as both simple things and complicated things. And what the pandemic taught me, many of the things that I enjoy doing are not conducive to surviving a pandemic. So I would say my instinct to work, and particularly with all of the racial violence and things like that, I spent the past year overworking. But it gave me a greater appreciation for all the things in my life that I used to do and that I'm looking forward to doing more of um, as we are now getting vaccinated and, and so many other things that are heading in the right direction. So one, I mentioned that I'm a nerd and you are not a nerd if you do not have an affinity for Star Wars or Star Trek or, you know, Lord of the Rings or, I mean, you just, you got to find like your, your place. So I am a huge fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Normally you would find me, particularly when I lived in Los Angeles, you know, at the, you know, midnight screening, you know, before it comes out to the rest of the country, you know, waiting uh, with my popcorn buttered, even though fake butter at the movie theater is terrible, it's still a guilty pleasure. Um, hanging out with my friends. So um, I also love spending time with my family. Again, I, my family and my friends I can't begin to describe the value that they bring to my life and the ways that they support me and encourage me and understand me. They get me. Um, and I don't take that for granted at all. I also used to be really into like fitness type of activities, but I like did something to my knee 
But then there was a pandemic and I was like, I don't want to go to radiology where they're doing all the CTs and the x-rays of people with COVID. So um, I haven't been able, and then they closed all the gyms and they closed all the swimming pools. I used to do triathlons. Um, And then I moved to Ohio and I wasn't ready to cycle in the snow. Like I still, I never figured that out. Maybe next year. Um, So I, I like being active. I also love going on vacations and finding a beautiful beach to sit in front of with a great book. Most people are surprised to find out how introverted I truly am. So I will go on vacation with my friends and they know like probably like the first couple of days, like I'm just not even having conversations. Like I'm just over in the corner, like just, um, But at the same time, I really enjoy spending time with my mentees. Like I have some of the best mentees in the world. So like, again, I guess it just goes to show like work is not work because I really am passionate about it. Um, Other random things I like to do, I like to roller skate and try not to like, you know, injure myself. I also believe in doing cartwheels. I I think you should never become too old to do a cartwheel. There's just something about it that makes me feel like a kid. So that's how I would answer some of those questions. That's awesome. That's very uh, diverse set of interests there. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be me if I could just pick one thing. (laughs) No, exactly. And that's, I love to hear that. Um, Thank you for sharing all those. Um, and I, well, again, I, I'm going to bring up because my mom actually did gymnastics as like a 45 year old woman at one point. She oh, wow. was like, okay. yeah. Um, so when you said like doing cartwheels, I'm like, oh my God, like that you're never too old to do a cartwheel. You're totally right. And she still does them to this day <laughs> at 55 years old. So um, anyways, that I, I love that. I think having that really diverse set of interests and activities and just things to kind of keep you grounded is awesome outside of medicine, especially like one of the big kind of um, motivators behind making this podcast was to remind people of like, we're human too. Like we're doctors, but or we're training to be doctors, but we're, we're human. And at our core, like no matter what drives us to become a physician, there's other things that also keep us grounded to that idea that we're not going to like drive ourselves in the ground and keep studying, 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 working, working, working. There's got to be something else too. Yeah. Oh, and I, I do like to cook for other people, but I was going to go back to that. Like people often think doctors and sometimes we don't do a good job of showing our real humanity and who we are. But I remember one of my colleagues, you know, just started watching the Mandalorian and kind of brought it up with one of his patients who's, you know, a a teenager. He's like, oh my gosh, I've never had a doctor mention the Mandalorian before. This is so cool. And I'm like, yeah, this is the way. Um, (laughs) But that was a deep cut. If you listen, if you watch the Mandalorian, you know. (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, I, I remember, so I, I didn't mention this, but I, I've done some work around preventing um, intimate partner violence um, as part of my work in public health. And I had a, a, a program where we went to Houston, Harris County, and we had to do ride-alongs with police officers. And Houston PD was not happy about having these little, you know, they had thoughts of, because I, I, for those who may not know, 
I obtained my master's in public health from Harvard. So they were not happy about having these, you know, Harvard elitist Yankees come down to Houston, Texas and tell them how to do their job. And so he was not happy to have me initially in the ride along, but then, you know, we like started chatting, he brought up something and then like, we go into this whole long spiel into, you know, the canon of, of the Marvel universe. And he was just like floored that I'm like, you know, I'm going, I'm going at it with them. I'm also a huge sports fan um, as well. Like I grew up with my dad and my brother and, you know, we watched sports and I did the stats for like my varsity high school basketball team. So I think those kinds of things throw people off. Um, but again, like when you're a nerd, like, it's like, no, I want to understand why did the play work? Like, oh, what's the probability he's going to make that shot? Or, oops, I know exactly where he's going because this is how the play is set up. So nerdiness can be to your advantage, even if you're always a bit awkward. I mean, I, I definitely embrace my awkwardness, but it makes all of these other things fun. And you can often catch people off guard. Like, no, I, I can have, well, some people might not consider those normal conversations, but <laughs> a normal conversation that doesn't have to do with like you know exactly how vitamin d like goes through you know the the transporter process and you know inside the cell and things like that but that kind of stuff i like too yeah i was gonna say it's a diverse uh i, I guess diverse set of things you can be nerdy about it's uh not limited to just academics um, that was one of the first things you told me i know when we even pitch the idea of having you on the podcast and you just said like, I don't really think, I think you said something along the lines of like, I don't really think I'm that like interesting. I'm just like a nerd who really loves medicine. And I remember you told me to write that down and send it in the email to you as a reminder of like, you just lit up when you said that and you were like, Oh my God, like I'm such a nerd about this thing that makes me really happy. And really like, I'm, you could tell you were passionate about it. Like, that's what I wanted to see. I don't care what you're interested in. If it's just medicine or if it's medicine and Marvel comics and all these other things, like now we've opened up the uh, kind of, kind of the array of all those things now, but it, it's being a nerd is such a fun this. It, it's fun. Um, <laughs> so I, I love that. Um, so thank you for sharing that that's again you can be human you can be a med student you can be a human you can be a doctor like those aren't mutually exclusive so i think you're living breathing evidence of that um i, I want to like start to wrap up just again in the sake of time here but these last two questions are a little bit loaded depending on how you answer them um so on every episode of the show i'm trying to make a little tradition of asking um, these two questions. The first of which is tell me who you are in three words. And that those three words, something along the lines of like, I'm a dreamer, I'm a doer, I'm a something-er. Um, or you can say, I'm a nerd, if you want to go with that too. Um, but what would your three words be if you had to choose? Well, I am going to hopefully be the first to break slightly away and rephrase that question back to you because someone asked me a similar question that I thought really resonated with me. And this was one of my mentees. She asked me, are you a fighter, a healer, 
or a builder. And you can only pick one. I was like, what do you mean I can only pick one? I'm all three. Um, she's like, nope, pick one. And so, you know, I went through all these different contortions to figure out how I could get to one. But I think it's easy to think of yourself as a healer, particularly if you're a physician. I do think often people forget that healing is an essential component of our profession. And if there's anything I would want listeners to take away from this is to never forget that. And like that is the absolute core of who we are as, as physicians. Um, but often to heal, we do have to fight for things and particularly fight and advocate for our patients and to quote unquote, right the wrongs. But if you're just fighting and you're not going anywhere and you're not replacing it with something better and you're not building towards a future, then it's just more chaos than it is progress. So I would say that I aspire to be um, a healer who recognizes the value of fighting towards building a better future. That, yeah, I think that encompasses a lot of things. That's meant it, it's a lot encased in a very like small phrase there. Um, a lot to unpack. And I think we've gotten the chance to really talk about a lot of those things in our time on the podcast. So that's, that's perfect. I don't, I don't need three. That's, that's awesome. Um, the last question I like to talk about is imagine that you're writing a letter to your, your, your younger self. And that could be at any point in your life. That doesn't matter if it's like someone when you were in med school or when you were in residency fellowship or maybe when you were in college and undergrad or as a high schooler, a kid, whatever it is to you, you're writing that letter. What does it say and why? So one, I think just to give you another assignment, you should totally make this happen. Um, the Players' Tribune the athletes have the letter to their younger self and they often recall like a moment or in their past and how it may have shaped where they are and how they perceived it at the time and, you know, the wisdom that they see now. So I think that would be awesome to do that as asking physicians to write letters to their younger selves. But um, if I had to think about a letter to my younger self, One, I have the advantage if I have journaled off and on ever since I was a child, I always get frustrated when there are gaps in my life, though. I'm like, oh, this is getting good. What happened? <laughs> um, but I think if I was writing a letter to my younger self, I would, it would be short. And it would be really more of an affirmation and a promise. So I would say, I would tell my younger self to trust me and to trust my instincts, to not be afraid of speaking truth to power and living an authentic life. Awesome. And I think even, again, very, a lot said in few words. So 
I think regardless of whatever you wrote in that letter, it would be impactful and powerful. So I love that. Um, that's really all I have. I, I say that like very lightly because all I have, we went through so many things. <laughs> that was, that was great. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I, I know when I had initially connected with you, you were someone that came to mind um, with the person I was building this podcast with in the very beginning. She had mentioned you as someone who would be perfect for this. And I'm, she was right. She was oh, very right. Thank you. So, thank you so much. Thank you for Can being I add here. One last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I would say that motivates me. I truly try to be the best version of myself that I can be. And that I wake up every day trying to be a better version of me than I once was. I'm very self-reflective and critical of my mistakes and quote unquote my flaws. And I appreciate the opportunity to surround myself with people who love me, but can be honest and be like, eh, missed the mark on that one. Um, but also give me that grace to grow. And so I, I wish that for everyone that you surround yourself with people that bring out the best in you, um, but also accepts you just for who you are. Thank you for those. I feel like a broken record saying that over and over. Um, you're, you're really hitting the nail on the head here. So um, I appreciate you being here and sharing all your knowledge and your wisdom and your story. Um, I, I loved hearing about it and I'm sure people who listen to this will feel the same. Um, if you have anything else, uh, now is the time to say it, any last words or anything. Um, but I just want to say thank you for being here. That's, that's all I've got left. Well, I want to say thank you for being um, an amazing person to talk to and, and making me feel at ease. Uh, these things aren't easy to do and you made it such a positive experience. Thank you for bringing that enthusiasm to this work and I wish you continued success. Thank you, Dr. Walker. Appreciate it. All right, guys. So there you have it. What an amazing conversation that was with Dr. Walker. Uh, In the beginning, she mentions that she would have a hard time talking about herself, but here we are almost an hour later and I feel like we were able to learn so much about her and her passions, her ambitions, and her values. I love talking to people who are passionate about what they do. And it's no secret that Dr. Walker absolutely loves what she does. She's just such an, a positive and uplifting spirit, and I hope that in listening to what she had to say, you came out of this episode feeling extra motivated to pursue your dreams, embrace your quirks, and find your people. As always, thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in for the next one, whenever that may be. <laughs>